Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. Before we get into the Nate Bressler interview, I want to tell you about a new image transfer tool I've been using lately called PicDrop. PicDrop's a really great tool for whenever you need to send off your files to your clients or whoever you're working with. You can create private galleries, different folders for whatever various assignments you're working on. And clients can actually write notes on the photos you sent to them and rate them. It's just a really easy way to organize all your stuff in one spot. I've been using it for a few months now. It's really just kind of helped me streamline my workflow. For years, I was using like Dropbox and WeTransfer and things like that. But with PicDrop, it was actually designed by photographers, so they really understand what photographers need. And actually, with today's podcast, if you enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER, you're going to get three months free of the PicDrop image transfer tool when you sign up at PicDrop.com. So definitely go check it out and let me know what you guys think. And remember, enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER, and you'll get three months free when you sign up at PicDrop.com. And without further ado, we'll get into the Nate Bressler interview. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Nate Bressler. Nate Bressler is a photographer who has spent much of his career documenting the American West. And beyond working as a photographer, he's had quite an interesting career and life. Uh, he's worked as an archaeologist, as well as working as a cowboy, and also currently runs a nonprofit called Sage to Saddle, which gives an opportunity for youth in the Pine Ridge Reservation of South Dakota an opportunity to ride horses. Um, just a really interesting guy. I kind of talked to him about some of his projects he's worked on. Everything from uh, documenting uh, San Quentin Prison, uh, photographing different prisoners there, as well as his experience shooting editorial, and uh, much, much more. Just a really interesting guy. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, Nate Bressler, a uh, long time coming. Welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing today? Doing all right, man. I appreciate you having me. Uh it is a long time coming. It's been about three weeks trying to get on the horn together. So hey, here we are. Hey, man, it's the life of a photographer. It's uh, every day is different. It's always moving. He's got a roll to punches, but um, glad to have you on. Um, like we were saying, our mutual friend Nils, he was like, you got to talk to Nate. You got to talk to Nate. So I was excited to have you. Um, but I guess to start off, I was kind of curious, like, where you grew up. Uh, well, I it's I'm a mixed bag, but I was born in Kansas in a town of about a thousand, uh, fourth generation there. And then when my parents split, uh, we ended up down in the panhandle of Florida. So I went back and forth between the, uh, Florida Bayou swamps and, uh, the great plains of the Midwest mm. so kind of upbringings in the deep South. And then, and, you know, basically the wheat belt or the, the grain belt of America, mm. America's heartland, if you, if you will. So, that's kind of those are the big influences on my photography for that reason. Nice man. What were you kind of interested in growing up? Was it always like creative stuff, or what, like even in like high school? What were you kind of interested in back then? Oh yeah, no, I, uh, no, I shit. I I was drawing a lot before I was five, and learned how to sew by the time I was six, and working with paint. My grandma was a painter. Damn. So we would sit down, we would sit down for her all the time, and and uh, pose for her and paint with her, and. My mom's an incredible artist. All my uncles, my aunts. Uh, so I come from a family of artists. We were pretty poor growing up, though, so we didn't have a camera, so it was all done with pencils and paper. And then uh, when I graduated high school, I was, which I, you know, was painting all the way through high school and uh, throwing pots and all that good stuff. Hmm. Um, 
when I graduated, I got a job doing archaeology and I could afford my first camera to record my adventures in my life. And kind of the rest is history on that whole thing. But yeah, I grew up creative with a really creative family. That's cool. So they're always supportive, supportive of your photography. Oh yeah. I always say I might be the only guy on the planet that whose mom says, whatever you do, don't move home. (laughs) (laughs) No, she's very, they're all very supportive, you know, but I grew up in a family of adventurers and photographers. And so I'm kind of just following suit for the old family bloodline. And, uh, so no, it's pure, uh, pure support from everybody. That's cool, man. And like you said, you got a job in archaeology. How, how do you, how do you get into that? That seems like pretty interesting avenue to go down. Well, this was, this was eons ago. Well, maybe not, but it seems like it, but no, uh, I was 18 and that was before they had, uh, kind of stipulations in the business that you had to be, uh, have a four year degree and have a field school experience yeah, or at least digging experience. And I got grandfathered in, I was in high school up in Kansas and a bunch of people I knew, knew these archeologists and they all knew that I was raised out in the woods in the panhandle of Florida. And I, so I found my first arrowhead at eight years old. So, wow. uh, I was already kind of in out in the woods and knew him well, and that's where we were digging. And so that's how I got the job. And then I get me and some other, other people, uh, worked our butts off and mm. worked our way up and got to travel all over the country working, uh, on digs and surface collection and all that stuff. But yeah, it was kind of a random through the back door sort of approach to archeology, span but then I ended up doing it for five years and mm. took a lot of pictures while I was doing it. And, uh, Got to work on a lot of amazing digs with incredible people from all over. Like, how does how does that work? I don't know much about archaeology. Is it is it is it like basically like companies or privately kind of doing research? Is yeah. It, is it? Yeah. So there's yeah there's academic as you would imagine with all the different universities out there doing digs and field programs and all that, and they might have a pit open for years that you know, some uh, college kids are working on while they're doing their anthropology degree. So there's academia and that's one style, but a big portion of it is privatized. And that's for all the people that want to develop. We did a lot of military contracts. So before they could go blow up or develop some new area land, we'd have to go in there and make sure there was no cultural significance. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's where you get a lot of your jobs from. You know, if you want to go into uh, downtown Wilmington and dig, you know, there's hundreds of years of history there, so they're not going to let you just dig to build your parking garage. You got to go in there and make sure that you're not taking out, you know, a, you know, somebody's grave plot or whatever sort of uh, culture significance there might be. So there's a lot of work in the whole thing, you yeah. know, and a lot of stuff on reses and all that. So yeah. that's interesting, man. Like, was it an enjoyable experience for you? What do you kind of take away from it? Oh yeah, I loved it, man. It was great. Why well, I was started sleeping underneath the stars at a young age and so i i love being outdoors i've spent every day outdoors and so no i loved loved it completely and i would probably kept going it but me and some other people were working so hard we blew our elbows out and Damn. had to take a break but then i ended up in a lab and was doing lithic analysis we were basically you know analyzing stones and that have been worked by man and uh and so i was in columbus georgia doing lab work i did four years of field work and i was in a lab and i was just going nuts at 22 years old 21 22 years old and yeah and uh so i took a black and white development course over at uh the city park it was basically geared for probably a bunch of retirees that were just looking for a little side hobby so i took a 15 dollar black and white crash course 
and they out at a city park in Columbus, Georgia. They had a they had a dark room, and that's why I started printing. So I was just shooting and printing because I was already shooting all the time. Anyways, I'd get all these old cameras at the flea markets for a couple bucks, get an old, old Yashica or an old Minolta or whatever, and then I ended up with an AE1 and all that. So I was shooting with all these old clanky, clunky, clanky cameras, and I had to uh, develop it. And I had to figure out a way to process and develop it, so I learned how to do that. So that's kind of how, you know, basically went from the archaeology to the photography. You know, it was like the camera was always just meant to be a, a journal for me. Mm. But you know how that kind of stuff is, you know, where it kind of found me instead of me finding it. That's cool, man. Like, what kind of stuff were you photographing, like, early on? Was it yeah, obviously, like, your archaeology stuff, or was there any other things you kind of photographing early on? Yeah, well, I mean, early on, so it started off with, like, I got it when I was turned 18, probably within three months of getting my my big job doing archaeology, and I would, I would work seven months out of the year all through the winter in the south where it was nice and cool in the wintertime and we i'd save up every dollar i had multiple roommates in a house that only cost about 150 bucks and uh had a bunch of room saved but we'd all kind of take off on our own go different directions so i would i started shooting just my travels i'd do five and six month long road trips in my 60 volkswagen bug and i'd go hitchhike alaska and so it was all just like travel my my just basically recording my life because i wanted i knew that was the best way to do it so i was starting at 18 and so by the time i was about 20 i started using setups with my friends i had all these eclectic interesting artist friends i was living in pensacola florida that had a big music scene so i just would shoot my friends bands and do fun stuff setups or whatever and then you know do slideshows for my friends i'd shoot for five months of all the stuff we'd get into then it New Year's Eve, I'd throw a big slideshow down for everybody because I used to shoot slide film just for that reason. Yeah. So it was all kind of just like one of those natural progressions. And I was doing the archaeology thing, getting out of it, and realized if I was going to do anything with the camera to be satisfied that I was, I, I, I called it living history is what I called it. Mm. And so I was the whole, my whole thing was I was just going to take my camera and go out and talk and record these stories from people that probably would never get them told otherwise. And, uh, and that would be my contribution to history. Instead of going and digging up old history, I'd, uh, time capsule with the photography and the story. And I'm probably guessing that maybe one day I just donated all to the Smith Sony or something. I don't know. Shit. I never had really, never knew what I was going to do with it. I just knew that's what drove me and what, what my passion was. That's cool. And 22 years later, I'm still chasing that same dream, you know? Yeah, man. It's pretty exciting. Like, how do you, because looking at your work, it's interesting. I know you do all your nonprofit stuff now. And then I was like looking at, you have like another website where it looks like you, you've done a lot of editorial. You've done some like commercial stuff. Like when did you kind of, was there a point you started taking your photography more seriously and we're trying to kind of make that your career? Like how did you kind of start getting into that, that world, I guess? Well, I mean, it was, I was doing archaeology. I had left the field and was in the lab. And so at that point, I took that black and white class and had a book together. And so I knew some people that knew people. And I was going to go to FAMU, uh, Florida A&M University over there in Tallahassee. And they had a, a photo instructor over there that was pretty legendary. And so I had some friends that knew him. And he was going to bring me in after he saw the portfolio I put together. Of course, I'm a rogue student. I'm 22 years old and never been to college and already had a portfolio and a body of work. So he was going to take me in and let me do like an independent study while I happened to show work to Sean Murphy, who was at the time really uh, 
on top of his game in the music and advertising world out in Los Angeles. And he was from the same small town in Florida that me and a lot of my friends were from. And uh, so he brought me out to LA. So that's kind of how that worked. I had, I had visited in New York more than once. I grew up with Carolyn Murphy, who's a well-known fashion model. And so I'd go up and visit her on my travels. And I went and saw my cousin who lived in Venice Beach and saw Venice Beach and said, not only would I never live there, I won't ever visit that town again. <laughs> of course, four years later, Sean Murphy's like, come out to LA, I'll hire you. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, now this is the same guy that in high school when I was painting and drawing all, all the time and seeing all my broke artist family numbers, I said, I'll never be an artist. That's how I ended up in archaeology. Yeah. But the two things I said I'd never do was be an artist, starving artist living in Los Angeles. Well, that's where I ended up at 23. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, that's how I ended up with that. And then right away, I, you know, I've got a lot of energy and know a lot, you know, have the ability to meet a lot of people. It's kind of a Southern thing to never meet a stranger. So, I, you know, I made friends quickly and yeah. And had, had, uh, you know, had my own story to tell. So right away I was starting to shoot little things out there in Los Angeles and it just kind of worked its way up. I ended up with Paul Jasmine and Melody McDaniel and some other really well-known more kind of on the artsy sort of respected side of Los Angeles photography at that point in the late nineties, early two thousands, it was all celebrity stuff for the most part. Mm -hmm. It was before Mizell and Testino and all the fashion guys had come over and set up shop. So, LA was very much kind of based off of that celebrity stuff. So I was going over there and, and, uh, trying to make my way in the whole world, you know? So I met these people, Paul Jasmine and Melody, and I was assisting those guys and they would be able to send me to New York with an incredible Rolodex and names and numbers and people they had already called. So I could go over there and meet George Pitts and, wow. you know, Kathy Ryan and, uh, you know, Cucurito and Ayakoy and all the big art directors from back in the day. That would, I had to, I had the luck of the, I guess, whatever. I was, I think I was so rogue of becoming this broke country boy <laughs> doing his own thing. And they were just like, and, and I, and it went through, and I don't know if you, how much you dug into the work, but, you know, I was able to kind of bring that sort of, you know, kind of country, let it be sort of, uh, approach with my photography where I like things very in you. You know, I don't like to take out the empty beer can. I don't want to take out the dirty dish, you know, like, I like my photos to feel real. And so I was getting hired by interview magazine, rest in peace before they closed down. And I was, they were hiring me to do really fun stuff. And, you know, I was getting big features in the back of the book with Bruce and some of the other big shooters at the time that were working for interview. But I was 26, 25, 26, 27 years old, starting to shoot for all those guys. Of course, this is when the editorial world was still big in the early 2000s. Yeah. Damn, that's exciting. Uh, and you kind of mentioned you were doing some assisting, so you're kind of like assisting and then kind of shooting, kind of bouncing the bolt for a little while, pretty much. Uh, still in, man. Yeah. I, uh, I'm very passionate about the type of work I do. I probably had a chance to be a big name and make lots of money, but I walked away from it. I didn't want to have that life. And yeah. unfortunately for all my buddies that are listening or whoever is listening, you know, I saw how tough and the struggle it, it, it is uh, to have this big overhead and, yeah. and build up this big empire and how much stress comes of that. And, you know, I, and I wasn't wanting to shoot big fashion. I didn't want to shoot celebrity and I didn't want to shoot any of that stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was my first year in Los Angeles, I had 27 different jobs, different jobs, not just 27 jobs, but I mean, from contracted out to paint buildings to replacing toilets and apartment buildings to a receptionist, to a bartender, to a bus boy, to, Selling pot, whatever it was. Like I had twenty seven different I drove I drove a car across country for somebody that year. Yeah. And uh, you know, that was 
uh, probably around 20 years ago. The last month I made money as a photo assistant, a photographer, a bartender, running the nonprofit, and cowboying. So I do cowboy work as well and work on houses. And Damn. so I've always maintained other outlets for making a little money to keep the lights on so I can go after my passion and, you know, sleep in my bedroom under the stars out in the West somewhere and, and work on these projects I've been working on for 20 years. Yeah. That's so it's, uh, it's, it's, I'm still not afraid to assist, man. I have, Hell on, you know, man. I'm not, too, I'm not too proud for any of that stuff. I'm not too proud to work for eight bucks an hour because I figure if I'm making money, I'm going, I'm moving in the direction I want to move, you know, and that money is just a tool for me. It always has been, it's never been a drive, you know, yeah. taking pictures or making art or throwing a party or cooking a meal that inspires people and makes people's days better. That was always my uh, goal with my artwork and mm. with kind of my daily approach in general. Yeah, you just want to make work that you're satisfied with. It's not so much about being published or anything. It's just kind of your personal satisfaction, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, looking back on it, that's probably what it is. I've been a terrible promoter. I could sell your work all day long, but I can't sell my own. My up, my website hasn't been updated in 11 years, and I was only did one because I was forced to. I was, I'm only on Instagram because I was forced to. And yeah. so I... Uh, no, I don't want it to sit in boxes, but, you know, I started at 24. I was at San Quentin working with incarcerated military, uh, honorably discharged military veterans. And, uh, you know, I showed that work around to Kathy Ryan at the New York Times Mag, and I showed it around to all kinds of people, Esquire and everybody. And they all wanted to maybe run it, but they wanted to do their little twist with it. And I didn't want to make it political and stuff like that. So that was a big early project to go live in San Quentin at that young age. I was the first guy in 25 years to get to live out there. And, so I was doing work that I thought was really important, and this was right when we went into Afghanistan and Iraq, and and uh, I knew what we were about to produce with all these new veterans, and so I wanted to bring awareness to that. Well, you know, it kind of just fell on deaf ears in some ways. People were excited. They liked the images, and they liked the political side of it. Well, I just wanted to say, hey, look, these are humans that we're doing this to, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so... You know, early on, I, the work that was passionate to me, people never quite, and I don't know if they still do, you know, I don't know if they still get grasp onto it, but I'm able to use all of that and what I am passionate about and the type of photography I do to now bring awareness and raise money, hopefully for these native reservations in the north that really need a lot of work and need a lot of help in the winter months, just take their grips on the kids, you know? Mm. So it's, it's photography's always, for me, it's always been, I was raised on the family of man and Nat Geo and all these incredible bodies of work by different photographers, the Dorothea Langs out there that really inspired me. And, you know, I think probably growing up poor makes a has something to do with that to where I was always interested in that person's story that, you know, didn't have anything and, and worked their ass off to get what they had and, hmm. and whatever it took to survive. I always appreciated that story, you know, yeah, definitely. um, the, the, you know, the privileged world. I mean, I, I think it's great that people have come from money and, and parents are able to, you know, sub, you know, do things for their kids and make their lives better. But, you know, I, for me, I, the struggle was something that, uh, I appreciated, you know, and people that could handle the struggle and, and, and no matter how bad it got, they can make it through. And it just felt character building situations. Hmm. So I, you know, so, that, so my photography, as much as I probably would like to make money doing it, I don't know if, uh, you know, a lot of times when you get hired, you become, you know, basically a trigger puller. And, and that's no offense to anybody listening. Uh, 
because uh, I've been there, we've all been there. Yeah. And there's times where we get to be very creative, but there's times where they say, hey, we really, really love your work. This is amazing. We love what you do. Now can you do this? And it's so different, so often what you do, and you're, you appreciate the fact that they respect you enough that they say, hey, maybe you can do this. But at the same time, I don't get that, you know. Knowing what my paycheck is at the end of the day is not going to be my drive to make these great photos, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah the the photography business is weird. Like, I, it, it's like it's. I feel like it's just so much. There's so many other factors involved. It's not like you're marketing like some product or something like that. I guess there maybe are marketing tactics you can use, but I feel like you you can try as hard as you want to get hired. But there's I feel like there's just so many other factors that go into it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, there's, oh, man, I tell you, there's so many different factors that go into it. I had a great, great weekend with uh, the guy that knows the photo editor over there. And uh, well, I guess I can say names, but anyways, yeah, old buddy of mine that started a photo editor was over at... Uh, yeah. Rob Haggard. And, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know if we were allowed to say names. No, nah, he's, I've had him on, I've had him on here before. We love Rob. Yeah, he's great. I worked with Rob with, with Jeff Lipsky. I was assisting him. And uh, Rob goes, uh, Rob calls me up on shit. We were over in uh, Cocoa Beach shooting Kelly Slater, and I'd known Kelly for a while. And wow. we were all having a good old time. We went out and party with Kelly. But anyways, we had such a good time. I went to a thrift store and bought this old man's coverall set up and, you know, the, with the brass clasp in the front that your grandpa would mow the lawn in back in the 70s. And I bought, picked up one of those in a straw hat. And that's why we did the whole shoot in. And I went out that night with Kelly and co and, and went out in this crazy outfit and, and Rob Haggard had such a good time and calls me up on Monday and I'm laying in bed with my girlfriend at the time. And it's six in the morning. He's in New York. I'm in LA. And he calls me up. He's Nate, Rob Haggard. I'm like, Oh, Jay, hey, Rob, you know, trying to collect myself. He goes, Send me something. Give me something to look at, man. I want to hire you, but I need something to look at. I don't care if you send me a Polaroid that's out of focus. Just send me something because I like you, man. I want to hire you. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's Rob Hager right there. You know, he's uh, that guy just believes in the soul and the spirit. You know, that's why he's so good at what he does. But, uh, yeah, he, he started hiring me and doing inside, middle of the book and advertorials and front of the book, back of the book by the end, you know, doing all kinds of fun stuff for them. Mm. and uh, that was all just based off personality. So, yeah, you can never, you never know why you're going to get hired. Yeah. You know, you just don't know what it, what it's going to be. And unfortunately, and, and I fall in this just as well, I'm, I'm not some technical badass photographer. I don't claim to be. I just happen to have a big personality. Yep. And the sad thing is that there is incredible talent out there that will never get hired because they don't know how to say hello to somebody they've never met before. You know, it's a real, yep. it's a real shame that, that you know so much of on the photo side you know i don't think painters deal with it as much although they do because it's changed so much in that world but you know a lot of you, you'd like to think that an, an artist's work is speaks enough for them that, that you don't need anything else on top of that but you know i get it you want these personalities on set you know and mm-hmm. so you, you can't ever tell how what's going to get you hired you know i was talking with Niels last night at dinner that you know, nothing cracked me up more back in the day when you'd actually do your rounds to all the magazines in New York when there were a bunch of magazines in New York and yeah. you go up and see somebody and they would tell you how amazing you are and how you're going to be the next big art star and they're going to hire you for every shoot and they're going to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And they tell you all these amazing, wonderful things and you go down to the bottom floor of that building, get out on the streets and you never hear from them again. Well, you go to the next magazine 10 minutes later and you get this art director that says, eh, 
Chad Griffith, great photographer, and he always says this. I always laugh every time he goes, "You know how those great meetings go?" <laughs> he's like, "Is this like how you say like you have a great meeting? It goes nowhere most of the time." Oh God, man! It, it, you know it's too bad. And I get it. you know you get these you know, a lot of times younger art directors that are just excited as can be about everything. Yep. Anybody that comes and visits, they get excited about, but it just doesn't work that way, you know? Nah, um, yeah. and like obviously like i was kind of curious like i know you do i'm gonna get into all your nonprofit stuff but when you kind of first started shooting like editorial and stuff uh what did you enjoy doing that work what did you kind of enjoy about the editorial stuff i guess well you know that was back in the day and i was working for paper and uh interview and so, you know, I was working for these more New York RT mags. I loved it. You know, unfortunately, interviews shut down. I loved it because they literally, Kim and all those guys over there and everybody over at interview um, would just, you know, give me the full freedom. Yeah. They would look, they saw my work, they saw my passion, they knew what I was about. And they would, I never got, I, I don't know if I ever got any real direction at all. And that's no offense to any of those people. They just trusted me and did not have to give me direction. Wow. So I enjoyed the heck out of it, you know, so, and I, you know, I kind of prided myself in doing my own thing and that's why I never really was worried about money because I was, it was more important to do something I was proud of, but yeah. you know, I would, I'd send these guys edits. I'd send literally send interview six images, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they were the six images that I knew that if they ran any one of those six images, I'm going to be happy about it. You know, cause yeah. I've seen some, too many people send in at bigger, broader edits. Mm -hmm. And somebody, unfortunately, would pick one that would just not be up to par for you, you know, and I didn't want that. So, um, no, I love the editorial thing. It just, it started, it just, you know, what happened really was, you know, things were kind of flown. And then 2007, the housing market crashed out in Los Angeles. The photo market is already such a fragile slice of the pie in the whole Mm -hmm. market space world. Um, So when now that happened, it really slowed down the work which was fine. You know, it was, I think it was, uh, Mark Baptiste that called it a refreshing, not a re- recession. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there was going to mix things up and, and, you know, hopefully the cream was going to rise to the top. Unfortunately, most, the biggest names in photography had to cut their rates in half and everybody else's rate followed suit from there. So yeah, you, you, you had recession, you had, which really hurt the, the, uh, photo market and then you have digital cameras that came out right around that same time when they really started to gain popularity yeah and when we came out of that recession with this new way of shooting and a new budget that had been cut in half and probably twice as many photographers all of a sudden because the digital camera made it more accessible you didn't have to unfortunately sorry guys you don't have to know your craft as much Uh And so it opened up the avenues for a lot of people to be able to jump in on the, on the train. Now photography, as you know, back in the day was just kind of never considered an art form. And there was more jobs than, than cameras or photographers back in the eighties and nineties, even in New York. And, 
as a trade. And, and when I started getting, when I got into it, you know, there was still, there was a lot of work out there. And then once everything kind of the magazines dwindled, mm-hmm. the music business really dwindled, yep. you know, music business went to, went South, the editorial business went South, the car business went South, you know, car photography used to make a lot of money. So mm-hmm. there was three, three factions of the business really hurt. So the whole business just got really hurt around 2008. Well, none of these, Blue chips or these big companies ever up their rates. No. They just started spreading out more. And now you're going to say you want to throw thing, one more hiccup in there. In 2010, Instagram comes out. Yeah. And so, you know, the whole business changed so much. In three years, the whole business flipped upside down, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it became about how many followers you had and how, you know, and we're talking about judging your work off a two by two inch screen. That's what kept me away from Instagram forever. I, I you know, it would sickened me to think that I would have these 11 by 14 leather bound portfolios that I sent around and my, and a website that you could see on a big computer. And now next thing you know, everybody's going to just judge your work off of inch and a half by two inch screen back in the day, you know? Yeah. So, so there were just so many factors that came in and once all that started kind of rolling in and, uh, you know, I, you know, and I still shoot and I love, I have outside magazine hires me, yeah. gives me wonderful assignments. I get to get embedded, which I love to do. I'll go spend two or three months on an assignment for outside. Damn. And, uh, so I love that kind of stuff, but it just, unfortunately the business got cheapened because there was less money. Now they need, I would conservatively say 25 times more work they need now than they used to, you know, you used to be able to get a, get away with a campaign for the entire year with eight or 10 strong photographs or the Abercrombies or the Gucci's or whoever it was in these big fashion worlds, you know, and if you're a Chrysler or Ford, you got away with just this limited amount of photos that got you through the year, you know, Mm -hmm. they need that many photos for just one day now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's everything's just kind of, the whole thing has changed. So my desire to get to push the editorial world, I haven't done those meetings in a, in, a, in a while. I haven't gone and beat the streets in New York. And it's because a lot of the magazines are folded and a lot of people have their hands tied. Hmm. A lot of people don't have nearly as many features that they can assign. Yep. And if they do, they probably are going to have to hire somebody who lives within six miles of where the photo needs to be taken so they don't have to pay for gas. You know, it's yeah. like no offense to any of you editorial people out there, you know, but I, we all know our hands are tied in that business and the advertising money is going away for the most part. Some magazines are still doing well, but a lot of them are really struggling. So, yeah. you know, to chase that whole thing is, a, it's a tough one, yeah, you it's, know? And, it's and I used, when I was first, when I first started, I was doing a lot of clothing companies and helping a lot of friends. Well, you know, and I get it. Most of those people don't have money. Mm. And even if they do, they don't have to pay for it because there's enough people out there that will shoot somebody's catalog for them for basically free. Yeah. It's pretty wild, man. Like I've been doing this like 11 years now. And even in the 11 years I've been doing this, like half my clients, like editorial, be it regional or national, the rates have this only gone down. They're not going up. So it's like, as when you look at it as like a business is like, how do you sustain a business where, uh, you know, uh, the cost of living goes up, but then your rates just go down. It's like, it, it boggles my mind every year, you know? Oh, it's, very mind boggling, you know, as a photo assistant, uh, you know, the rates have gone up a little bit, but the shit in 20 years I've been around this business, the rates for a photo assistant has hardly gone up. You know, the price of gas has doubled. Yep. Price of milk has doubled. Price of rent has tripled. Yep. But you're, you're making maybe 50 bucks more than you were 20 years ago. Yeah. And there's, and there's this like, like, I think 
for me, when I look at it, digital photography changed the game a lot because if you look at probably like the 80s, 90s, there was a lot of photo jobs, like a lot of photographers I assisted for, they used to make a lot of money doing like corporate photography or like annual reports, and you can make great money doing that. But now it's like a lot of times, uh, it seems like companies are like, you know, Joe from accounting's got a 5D, um, his photos will be good enough for the headshots, you know what I mean? Whereas like, Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Oh no, everything got, it's all gotten cheapened. You know, I mean, even like you say, even to that extreme where that's not even something that's typically going to go out into anything into a mass market. And that stuff still used to be something that was respected. You'd get top notch photographers do those corporate headshots and stuff like that for the big, for the big uh, corporations out there. Definitely. And there was, there was respect in the fact that you were getting, making good money doing it. So it was something that you would desire, you know, want to attain throughout the year to help keep the lights on, mm. you know? Yeah. No, it's, no, no, it's, it's been, it's, it's been tough watching. That's for sure. You know, like you say, it's hard. How do you sustain any of this whenever everything's kind of going the wrong direction? Yeah, mm-hmm. man. I'm in, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm always juggling like a ton of different shit. It's <laughs> just like trying to stay busy and just stay sane. You know what I mean? Um, it's a, Oh, I mean, I have, I have a lot of good friends in this business and a lot of people that have made millions a year, like guys that were killing it and girls that were killing it. Mm -hmm. And I've always maintained an overhead of about 15,000 a year. (laughs) That's good, good, man. Whatever it takes to be able to survive. I keep a very low overhead. Nate's a minimalist. uh, Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, because I knew that if I wanted to keep doing my art, I had to. I couldn't get married. I couldn't have kids. I couldn't buy a house. I mean, I bought six acres in Florida for twenty thousand dollars. That's just crazy. And I built my own cabin. Nice. You know, I took, made a lot of life decisions to be able to maintain this because I knew that there would be no way, mentally, financially, physically, that I could uh, survive if I had three kids and a house came out in Los Angeles in the, in this kind of business. Mm-hmm. And I. I saw that early on, and so I've always tried to keep a level head on that whole thing. Well, I have a lot of good friends that when I get those phone calls from them saying, Nate, I, we need to go have a drink, Yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to hear to watch my buddies go from a million a year to 60000 Now, that seems like a decent amount of money. Well, 60000 as we know, in a big city doesn't get you anywhere. Hell no. And you know? Especially all the costs that go into running a photography business. Uh, yeah, um, but not to get on negative. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna turn this around. No, we're, no, we're gonna no, get, no, we're gonna get. Negative, <laughs> with the reality. It's, 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 it's the business. It's the reality. You know. Yeah. Are, are we? You know, in case there's some young photographers out there listening, <laughs> no. you know, they can hear that. You know, this shit. kind of weird. I think for me, it's just like you can't. I try this like, for me, I like you. Like I just try to take the pictures I like. You know, put them out there, whatever. I, I just don't really expect anything from photography at this point. Like if opportunities happen, that's great. But it's just like, it, it's just a weird career. There's no like trajectory. It's just like, you know, shit might happen. Shit might not, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. There's, it's, you know, I, I mean, probably with a lot of the arts, but yeah, music business and everything else. But yeah, there's a lot of unknowns mm-hmm. and, you know, especially for business, it is, it is, it's a business, yep. you know, you're, you're providing a service, you know, service, but yeah, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, you know, you go to a restaurant, when you order the bur- burger, you pay for the burger in our business, you can order the burger. You might want to complain about it later on, finish the burger, complain about it and say, you don't want to pay for it you know? it's like, or make them bill you 55,000 times before you pay for the burger, you know? Yeah. <laughs> For sure. But anyways, you know, but it's just, it's just, and I'm not 
saying that this is a negative conversation. It's just, it's the reality of it all. No, and, man, and, I, I, and yeah. Even though it's, it, 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 you know, from observation from the outside, it looks like a really glamorous life and world, but it's, it's not, it's, uh, you <laughs> it's know, a, there's a lot of sacrifices and especially if you want to do what you are, you know, yep. what you're proud of. Yeah, for sure. Know? For sure, man. It's a grind. Um, and you know, I was excited to talk to you. You kind of mentioned it quickly. Um, the project project you did at San Quentin, uh, which is, I believe a prison in California, correct? Yeah, it's the oldest prison on the West Coast. It's been there since the late 1800s. How did that kind of come about? Was that basically a personal project, or how did you kind of get in there and start photographing all that? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was raised with military family, and, and my mom remarried military, and all my grandfather, everybody in my family served in wars and, and, and in the military. So it was always something I was aware of. And uh, when we went into... Uh, after 9-11, we went into Afghanistan. I knew we were about to get into it again, you know. And so I saw this whole thing going, and we happened to be, I was working for a photographer, Justin Stevens. I kind of helped him when his career just first started. Now he's a big movie guy. And so Justin was young. I was young. We were both in our 20s. And Kathy Ryan over at New York Times Mag sent us to San Quentin to photograph a female warden over there that was doing a really neat project with kind of giving rehab rehabilitation rehab all uh along with punishment so like you know if you did if you're good you got you got rewarded for it so the she was this kind of neat new new warden that was kind of bringing in new ideas into the prison system and so we did a story on them and we were walking around the yard and we had a guy that had been working for the prison for 30 years take us around and we first gotten taken around by an, a a kid with a college degree that had been in san quentin for about two years he was clueless as then and out so that 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 system and yeah. so we end up with a guy that had been there for 30 years he goes now let me show you what's going on in san quentin so he walks us around and really breaks things down well we were looking at the yard and he was saying you notice how the northern mexicans play volleyball in the southern you know the south of fresno mexicans play handball and you know you've got the black guys on the on the basketball court and you got the white guys on the weights and the samoans get the football field and he's like breaking it down it's fascinating to look just to see how the yard's broken down and just as he's shown us all that this group of guys walk out of a building with all matching blue hats. I said, who's the, who are those guys? And he says, well, those are the Vietnam veterans group of San Quentin or an organized honorably discharged veterans group. Well, being raised the way I was raised, knowing we just had gone into Afghanistan, I saw those guys and I, I, I had a tear in my eye the second he told me who these guys were. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had my run in with the law and I was raised with military family. So I know, you know, everything that's kind of going on there, you know, 17 years old, you're drafted to go to Vietnam. Uh, the last time you saw your mom as a free man, you come back, you commit an act, a crime that you were trained to do and brainwashed to do in Vietnam. You go and protect your, your buddy's daughter when you go back to the States and you never see your mom a free man the rest of your life. So there were some really wild stories there and I, and I wanted to tell the story. So I wrote them a long heartfelt letter to the, to the actual veterans group. This is in the letter writing days. And, uh, and so I wrote them a long letter just saying, Hey, I'm my blah, blah, blah. This is how I was raised. This is what I do. This is what I want to do with you. My uncle was 513 river division. Well, 513 river division is the division apocalypse now was kind of faced after. So my uncle was part of some heavy, heavy stuff over there. So as soon as I said 513 river division, I had a letter two days later from those guys saying anybody raised by 513 river division is a friend of ours. Wow. You know, come on up. And I was in San Quentin. I was up there shooting within a week and a half of the letter. Well, that's amazing. And like, uh, like the, like the warden, like the whole, like the state didn't really give you any roadblocks pretty much. They, they didn't, they just kind of welcome. No, because 
Well, they were the heart, these guys are the heart and soul of the prison. Yep. And so they run the NA groups and the AA groups. They run the prayer groups. They run art groups. They, I mean, they are the heart and soul. They're the support system. If anybody dies in the in the prison, Popeye mm-hmm. would play taps for the person. Like, yeah. These guys were they were the 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 core the 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 strength of that of that prison without a doubt. They were the ones that bridged racial gaps and everything else. And so they were really the heart and soul of San Quentin moving because, you know, you're not going to get uh, prison guards and wardens to be able to bond people like these guys are able to. Yeah. So when they told the warden and, and they have a guy, Bill, that was over there, really neat guy, young guy that lived on the property. They, you know, Bill was kind of their liaison to help them do what they had to do. Cause they did bike, they did toy programs for kids. I mean, these guys would freaking raise money from inside the prison and be able to give toys to kids that needed it, you know, really special guys. And so I wrote them this letter and they told Bill, Hey, Bill, we want this guy up there. Well, Bill talked to the warden. And like I said, within a, you know, a week, they had me up there and spent two days up there that day. Then I went up a couple weeks later and ended up spending uh, four or five days sleeping on the property. I could hear the prisoners getting woken up every morning at 5.00 AM. Wow. Uh, It was intense. And I got to, and I had basically all access to everything except for the the death row guys that were you know over uh in yeah. solitary confinement those are the only two guys only four guys whoever it was and that was ramirez uh manson had already been moved Damn. but i know richard ramirez was there but it was some of the biggest criminals on the west coast were in that solitary confinement so i couldn't get go to them but i could go anywhere else Damn. in that prison what, what and, a, and were, were you nervous going into that or like what do you remember about your mindset going into prison like oh, i guess uh nah you know i well like i said i was i was raised with a tough dad i had my run-ins with the law i was raised poor i, yep. I was raised with a rough crowd yeah uh no nah, yeah no shoot i sleep under the stars anywhere any time of the week i sleep in my car with the with it unlocked anywhere i, par- I decide to park it on a road trip i've driven across country 80 times so yeah you end up in a lot of Whoop. it was uh no, no, I mean, you know, but these guys, they knew I was there to help them. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, I can find common ground with a lot of different people, but we had some real common ground. And, they, you know, I always feel like so many of the projects I do are a lot of times raise awareness for people's situations, and it's always people in pretty bad spots. Well, you know, those when anybody knows that you're there with good intentions to help them, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's pretty rare. You get kicked back on that. You might get kicked back from some dummy that's on drugs and alcohol that doesn't know any better. Yeah. But typically a community, when a community knows that, Hey, this guy is like out of his own pocket, living on the ground, eating wherever he can eat, you know, we're feeding the guy so that he can keep this project alive. Yeah. We're not going to, you know, we're going to be there for him. So I, you know, I, 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 I was not nervous at all. I think I was whatever, 25, 26 years, no, not even mm. 25 years old. And, and, uh, no, I mean, I was, I was thrilled to get to go up there and they were so kind to me. Mike, who is the leader of the, of the whole group shook my hand the first time I met him. The next time I saw him, he gave me a, a ring for my finger and he goes, this should fit perfectly. I remember your ring size from when we shook hands. Wow. You know, so, and he was a Buddhist, really neat guy. He was the heart and soul of that, of their whole group. So, uh, you know, neat stuff. So no, I, you know, I shoot, I mean, and I would walk around, I'd go to North block four and all these old famous, um, blocks that were from the 1800s, you know, with bullet holes everywhere and birds flying through and all the history. And, 
I mean, guys would pose for me and whistle at me so I could take a picture of them. So no, they all... <laughs> they were receptive. You know, yeah. Very, yeah. That's cool. I guess, like, what, what do you kind of take away or learn from doing that project, spending your time there? Uh, not many people, like, spend that time much time in a prison like that. What do you think you kind of learned shooting that project, do you think? Oh, God, what I learned. Well, well, I mean, I, you know, not to, maybe it's too early to go full circle with it, but the whole reason why I started this nonprofit is I was, I've been, just kind of going, going, going. And I had, it'd been a while since I really put in real hard passion, the one very specific thing to help a community or help somebody. Mm. And when I started this nonprofit over here on Pine Ridge reservation, uh, you know, that was a big catalyst because I was laying in bed one or laying it underneath the Sundance tree in my camper on the back of my truck. And, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I got to help these guys. And man, I used to do all this stuff and I used to, you know, I've just been kind of, you know, chasing my dream or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and that's where the, that whole thing. So I think what it did was it instilled in me the power of photography. And even though that book, that story never got published mainly because I was so closely guarded it, that, uh, you know, I think that I just, I, it, it instilled in me that this is what you need to do. Nate, this is where your passion is. This is where your heart is and all that, you know, and I'd always kind of done little things and, got to you know i'd hitchhike around the south right wherever i'd end up hitchhiking and eating the last can of spam with somebody that was dirt broke that didn't have their lights on and we'd have their last glass of purple kool-aid and have a, our last can of spam and yeah. i get to tell their stories and support them and get change their afternoon and their outlook on things and like so i was always doing those little things but you know i think the the san Quentin thing really kind of instilled in me that like I have the ability to help people, mm. you know, with, with the business, not as Nate Bresser, but just with the, the business of photography and with the power of the imagery, yeah, you know, telling like real stories. Cause I think that, I think I enjoy about your work is this, there's like an honesty to it. Um, cause a lot of times once you get into, as you know, like into corporate or advertising or whatever, um, you can kind of force you to start shooting ways, uh, to try to find work, but it seems like with your work, it's really about telling like honest stories pretty much. Yeah, that's, you know, that was the whole goal, you know, mm. but I, I want, I want, you know, I, like I said, I want to have a body of work that one day I can donate to some museum or to somebody that would maybe care about what was going on in America from, you know, the mid nineties to let's hope for me, the, the late 2000, 2100s. I don't know. No, I'm not going to live that long. No, but anyway, no, it, no, the whole point was the, yeah, the, you know, to, to take these pictures that, that I was proud of, that I felt like told a story, didn't hide somebody's emotion. Didn't I, you know, I never liked to, Yeah. You know, I, like I said earlier on, I don't, I never wanted to, you know, misrepresent anything in the photo. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to, you know, and that's why it was always tough to do the commercial stuff, you know, and, Early on, you know, I shoot a lot more women now because I work with a lot more with these horse girls and these cowgirls and these, these yeah. girls out on the res. And, you know, don't worry about, don't fuss over their hair and makeup and they just are out there to get something done. And yeah. and that was a tough part early on for me when I was doing the commercial stuff. We'd be like, okay, let's do this. Let's, I, got it, I got the energy up. We've got a good group of people here and let's get this going. And, well, hold up. She needs to get back in the makeup chair for a half an hour. And, yeah. you know, and I get, this is all part of the business. You know, yep. I'm not ragging on any of that, but it just, for me, I always kept running into these roadblocks and mm -hmm. creatively where it was kind of like, okay, well we need, but we need to show the belt, yep. you know? And I'm like, yeah, I get that. I get all of that. You know, it just, it, for me, that wasn't what I wanted to do with my, my 
creative juices. You know, that didn't get me going. That didn't, you know, that I sleep better at night. Oddly enough, I sleep better at night on a year that I make $20,000 and I've lived on the ground for eight months. I probably sleep better those years yeah. where I'm not just helping, yep. working for people. Cause you know, that's how I get fed on the road is I'll go help people yeah. you know, and I'll do work and I have my camera around my neck or I have a little binocular bag that straps to my chest and I'll have my camera with me all, all day, every day and be doing whatever I'm doing and, and you know, do whatever it takes to survive, you know? Yeah, man. And to be able to keep doing my, to be able to keep doing my work. Yeah. You know? No, it's awesome. And you know, I was excited to talk to you about, um, like you mentioned your nonprofit, uh, uh, Sage to Saddle. Um, what is like, how, what is it? And like, how did you kind of come become involved with it? Maybe you could explain a little bit more. Well, that's, uh, once again, back to kind of getting embedded on assignment. I was working for outside following the Indian horse relay story and with a guy, Stan Brewer, an incredible guy who's now a brother to me. And outside was going to go follow Stan Brewer and, and the brew crew, his race team around. Well, the reason why they want to follow him around is because Hermes, their uh, world champion jockey, who was from Pine Ridge, they're all, this is, these guys are all Pine Ridge reservation people. They, uh, Hermes took himself uh, by riding up to a tree and on his property, throwing a rope over it, smacking his horse and letting the horse ride off. So he took his own life that way. And it's very common out there. So that's, that was the story that outside wanted to get into. It was kind of like this team dealing with the tragic loss of their world champion jockey and kind of the aftermath and how to pick up the pieces. So we're following them around while I get on this horn with Stan Brewer right off the bat before I ever shook hands with anybody or may, you know, and, and even talking to the right, talk to the writer, uh, I get a hold of Stan and I said, Hey, look, man, I'm, I did archaeology for years. I've done Native American kid camps for the last 20 years. I used to go do to work with the Tahona Otham and some other tribes. And we take kids out on, on, uh, you know, creation story, field trips and whatever else. So I was very well versed in what was going on on the rest. So I said, Hey, you know, Stan, I know what's going on at Pine Ridge. Diane Sawyer's been there. BBC has been there. Vice News has been there. They've all told the story about this is the worst place in America to live. Yeah. One of the worst places in the developed nations to live. And I said, I don't want to go out there and just harp on this whole thing. You know, this is not the story I want to tell. I want to talk, talk about how pride and proud and how strong and in the history of the Lakota, I want to, I want to, you know, reveal that with my photography. So, you know, so that was what I had going in. Well, you know, long story long, we, I get embedded with Stan and his family and the race team and everybody out on the res. And so a month later, a month and a half later, I'm living out on the res, sleeping underneath the Sundance tree that was on Stan's property. And, and, uh, and, uh, so I, I'm looking at what's going on out there and there's kids and just thrilled to be on horses all summer long. And the Lakota nation's a horse nation, the only nation to beat Custer and, and us Calvary. And, and so there are these fierce horse warriors and, tough, tough nation. Well, you know, when they beat Custer, they got their asses handed to them from the U.S. government. They were the last tribe to hold out. You know, this is the late 1800s. The rest of the country had been pretty tampered down. And and uh, so we've got one one uh, tribe left. Let's just give it to them as hard as we can. So they take away the Black Hills. They burn three or four of the treaties they made with them, and they stick them out in the, in the Badlands where you can't grow anything and no animals can survive. Mm. And so there's this horse nation out there and this is seven generations ago. Well, within seven generations, they've managed to go from this beautiful nation that they were to 
80% unemployment, 80% addiction rate, 80% incarceration rate, 17 people per single white trailer. Jeez. And on top of that, you've got kids that are stuck in this, these trailers with 17 family members. And if you can do the math with 80% of them on drugs and alcohol, they're in a tough position. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they go to these trailers that are from the 1960s that are dilapidated and have holes in them and are freezing in the wintertime because Pine Ridge winters are nasty up in the Dakotas. And, and uh, these kids are trapped inside. And so that created a, a suicide season in late March where these teenage kids just start offing themselves. So they're four times the national average on teen suicide, which is already the biggest killer of teens anyway. And so I'm looking at these, these kids with their horses in the summertime lining up 15 of them chasing around one little pony waiting for their chance to ride. And they are just, everything is forgotten about. And of course, now I'm walking around talking to elders and older people saying, Nate, do you, do you know the story here? Do you know how bad this is? Do you know this? Do you know that? I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, I know this is the worst place in America to live, you know, but I, and I would tell them, I say, I know that, but I, well, all I see right now is a bunch of beautiful people mm-hmm. enjoying their lives and, 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 and forgetting about all that for a moment, you know? So I went back after their big fair weekend, their big powwow weekend and with all the races and all the horse stuff that they had going on. And I went back to Stan's property that was underneath the Sundance tree. It's pouring rain on Sunday night. And that's when it all hit me. I was just like, these kids are going to have to pack these horses up in a month. And those smiles and those, I'm like, how did the kids that I saw today, how did they end up killing themselves in seven, eight months from now? Well, you know, when you really think about it, it makes sense. Yeah. So I said to myself, well, you know, this seems pretty simple, you know, like, first off, I've got all this photography. Maybe I'll do wheat paste of the photos of them in the four corners. There's, one corner, there's one intersection in all of the town of Pine Ridge. It is their main intersection. It's where all the drunks and druggies are and, and boarded up windows and dilapidated buildings and just sad, sad, sad four corners. This is the heart of their reservation, and it's mm-hmm. sad. So I said, maybe I'll put up wheat paste of them riding their horses looking so proud and strong, and, and maybe that will help encourage them and let them see what kind of incredible community they are. And, you know, as I'm laying there thinking of this, I'm like, what is a photo, what is a photo going to do for these guys? You know, them seeing themselves like that, they still have to go out to their trailer for the rest of the winter. Yeah. You know, and most of these kids, this is the size of Rhode Island and Delaware, this reservation. There's not one billboard or there's one movie theater in the middle of the entire thing with one theater, but this, this is two, the size of two States mm-hmm. and it's spread out. So these kids are, when they're out their house, they are in a food desert and they're 10 miles away from the closest sucky market. Damn. So I'm going, man, I got, you know, these guys, you know, as long as they have to go back to these trailers, nothing's ever going to change around here. So I said, man, I'm not an indoor riding arena, you know, then they can be with their horses, which they love to do. I see what horses do to them. And if they had an arena that was out of the elements in the wintertime, they might be able to keep this attitude up all year round, especially if we give them a classroom where they can finish their their studies and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and have great experiences with their friends, get positive reinforcement from the elders, have the responsibilities of equine therapy or equine relationships. And so I look at that and I'm saying, all right, that's what they need is a place to go to right from class, right to the arena, snacks, hmm. finish their finish their studies, three or four hours with their friends on horseback, working with horses, working with their friends, going home fed, done with their school. So, you know, and of course you've got to imagine with those home life situations finishing your your day's studies is almost impossible back in those houses so we could send them back 
keep their grades up, encourage them to keep their grades up because that's how they're going to stay in the program mm. and really be there supporting them with counselors and tutors and uh, just good attitudes around. So that's so that, that that's how I ended up with this nonprofit. But, you know, I saw myself and the whole thing was like, well, this this is not a new idea. I'm not going to ever claim that I was the first one to say, hey, we can help out some poor kids in the middle of nowhere with an arena that they can ride in. I'm not going to be the first person to do that. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying I am. I just knew that I could actually make it happen. Yeah. Did- there have been plenty of people out on Pine Ridge that wanted to make it happen. And I knew that I had the connections with the photo business in New York and L.A. And I had all these great pictures that I could raise awareness with. Did 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 you receive any like pushback from the people from the reservations? Being like you're this some guy coming in, uh, was that hard to make this happen? Were there any people like, hey, who does this guy think he is coming in, trying to do this, or did it take you all kind of build their trust? These people on these reservations, or what was kind of your interaction with like meeting all these people? I guess. Well, you know. Uh... Fortunately, I have darker skin. I'm not, you know, even though I'm not, I don't have native blood, but I do have brown skin. So yep. on appearance, I slightly fit in. Got it. They saw me sleeping on my gr- on the ground. They saw me driving around. I've got a 20-year-old pickup truck. I'm not driving around with a flash truck. Mm. My cameras, my the camera I shoot it was a, given to me by Niels Erickson, an old Mark III yep. that has most of the paint worn off of it. I shoot with a pancake lens. It's $170, brand new. You know, they see me walking around with minimal gear there's people walking around with better cameras than me mm-hmm. you know they see me living on the ground they see me eating with them yeah. uh you know living with them everything that they knew that it was pretty for real yeah. uh and this is before i even came up with they were just like all right this guy's the real deal he's an old archaeologist he can sleep <laughs> outside he knows horses i've written you know i rode across the state of wyoming on a horse before so like they they're like all right this guy knows our world and he's cool you know we can fit him in mm. And the only little bit of pushback I had was I had, and I'm not going to say names here, but there was uh, a well-known elder out there that's been doing horse programs out there since 1986. And we had a big, long sit down. He was praises and love for the whole idea and told me later on that afternoon when we got back on the phone that, oh, yeah, man, Nate, I really support that. Well, he went home and talked to his wife and he calls me the next day and says, hey, Nate, you know, my wife brings up a good point. Why don't you just give me all the money you raised to me? Oh, wow. And And I just said, hey, man. I appreciate that, but if you just met somebody and and they said, give me $200,000 that you just spent two years raising, are you going to do that? He's like, yeah, no, I get it, I get it, I get it. I was like, well, look, man, I want to support you. And I told him the day before I would support him and that I'd kick him a little money so he could have a tack room so he could do little rides out of his property for kids. Yeah. So, But now, long story long, you know, all these people out there, they all know the plight of the situation. They know how bad it is. They know it's terrible. They want their kids to be able to have some sort of hope. And so, no, I, you know, I've not, there's not, I have yet to find one person that I've told, and I'll go up to the drunkest of the drunks to the whatever, you know, from all ranges of of the, of the classes out there. And I'll say, Hey man, oh yeah. Oh, you were, you on Nate. I'm good friends with this family, this family, and this family. I'm out here because trying to raise money to be able to give these kids an arena to ride in in the wintertime. Oh my God, that's great. And do you know my grandson and my granddaughter and you need to talk to my son and he'll help out. And yeah. when, you know, when you got 80, 80% unemployment, there's plenty of volunteers and plenty of people to help out. But no, these, this nation, they want it. They want better for them. You know, it's tough when, when you've got a nation that's falling apart in seven generations, like it has, you know, it's to go from crazy horse and sitting bull to where they are now. It's a tough, tough situation. And, and I know they just as well as they do that, 
there's ways that, you know, we can do this. We can make a difference. And I can feel a buzz out there. And I've got this great group of buddies and that are all mainly in their 20s and early 30s. And these guys never drank or smoked in their life. And mm-hmm. they, they run, they do sun dances and sweats and language programs and dance programs. And these are all my friends out there, you know. And we have long sit downs, you know. And I get, I have kids run up to me and we're on a 150 mile ride doing the crazy horse ride or we're doing the little bighorn ride. And I'll have some kid come run up to me and, Hey, Nate, uh, Grandpa Shorty wants to talk to you. Okay, cool. I'll go walk over there, and all the elders will be in a circle, and I'll have a chair ready for me, and I sit down with them. I'm 42 years old, and I'm sitting down with guys in their 60s and 70s, and, yeah. you know, they want to know what my opinion is of the ride and, and of the situation and what I think could be better. And, you know, it, no, they see value in the fact that now I've spent two summers out there yeah. out of my own pocket to, you know, and I've dedicated myself to raising this money, using my photography to do books and art shows and raise awareness. They see what I'm doing. And, and so no, now I've got elders going, Hey, Nate, send me a bunch of those photos. I'm going to go talk to the gaming commission. I'm going to go talk to the Seminoles down in Florida. They've got money. I'm going to go talk to Shakopee. They've got money, you know? So, so I've got a bunch of people, they, they see what I'm doing and they want to join in. Now I've got people going like, I'm going to raise money for you to have a native tell me I'm, they're going to raise money for me to be able to bring it back onto the res is pretty, it, it's a very satisfying, rewarding kind of, yeah, makes it all worth it situation. Yeah. yeah, You've, you've, you've made your, yourself a part of the community. It seems like. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I, I go to a lot of sweats with them. Uh, they do sweat ceremonies just for me when I'm in town. I mean, I ate, I mean, I, whatever, I'm not going to get into the depths of the ceremony, but yeah, I've yeah. been invited to see some really intense stuff that, uh, you know, I was the only the second white guy ever to charge the battlefield, a little bighorn. The first white guy got knocked off his horse mysteriously. Wow. I had heard that story left and right. They let me charge Damn. and I rode all the way up to the fence. I've got to be a supporter in the Sundance and I didn't eat or drink in solidarity with those guys. And, you know, the the main tattoo artist out there that's an incredible art, art, artist that does very Native-inspired tattoos, he he tatted me and wow. gave me a three-hour session. And, like, you no, know, they've, I mean, we've become blood brothers, literally, with, you know, through everything. And, uh, no, they, they, they're, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm part of this. I mean, we tell each other we love each other and we're family, you know. Yeah. Like, these guys know. And, I you know, I'm, so when I'm out there, I'm sleeping in trailers. If I'm not sleeping out on the ground because the weather's bad, I'm sleeping in somebody's single white trailer in one of their kids' beds or on their couch or on their floor or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And so now they, uh, you know, they're they're not they're smart enough to know that like there's not a lot of people on their side, and to have me come in, and that was the whole point of starting the nonprofit. All these other news organizations have been there, but on Monday morning they pack up their bags, they tell, get their poverty porn, they tell their story, they pack up their bags on Monday and leave. Yeah, they don't. Do you know, and they never, you know, so it's like, hey, great, thanks for the story. Everybody's going to really love me telling about how effed up it is out here on Pine Ridge. Thanks. Yeah. See you never. You know. And I was just like, and I told those guys from day one, like, man, I'm not going to just blip in on one weekend and be gone. You're going to see me. I'm out there to tell a story, and that story led to this. Yeah. And, you know, and then the idea is for this to be very successful, people to see the success, which I know is it's going to have, and we get some philanthropists with billions of dollars to give us four million, and we can build twenty of these on twenty different reservations. Wow! You know, so like we can make a huge impact in the cold climate areas and the places you know, and where they have no money and they have no hope. Mm. So you know, there's the sky's the limit on this whole thing. You wow. know, so. Yeah. And I'm going to keep shooting the rest of my life. I'm never going to stop shooting. I'm probably not going to stop coming up with ideas to help people either. You know, it just this is where my dedication is right now, and it's the epicenter of of the 
sadness of our country and so i feel like it's probably a pretty good start you know that's amazing and like looking at all the photos you've been posting on your instagram like are you basically are you basically living on these reservations year round now is it basically kind of your, you're working on the sage to saddle and photographing this stuff or is it kind of you're in yeah i mean definitely you know i still spend i built that cabin in florida so i spend a month in my cabin mm. usually in january and i work on that yep. and kind of just recollect uh and then i spend a couple months a year in in venice beach california where i've lived for years and have lots of friends i still am able to contact people for the donation side and keep my photo business going up out to assist out there i still bartend out there yeah um and so no i still get out there but then i'm i cowboy an hour north of the reservation just so i kind of have a place to make a little money yeah. and the only way I'm making money is by, by raising cows and selling them. But, wow. uh, wow. you know, so I've got a ranch, a ranch an hour North of there and I take lots of pictures up there and that's just Americana, uh, on steroids. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, it's it's, ran, it's ranchy, you know, and we get, so we get real ranchy. And so all my buddies that I ranch with all these white ranchers from off the res, they come down with me and we brand with my native buddies when we do brandings down at ranches, res ranches and vice versa. I have my res buddies come up and help us up there. And, wow. and so for me, it's neat to be able to bridge these gaps between cultures that normally would never ever, uh, overlap. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so no, it's, uh, I spent a lot of time up there. I don't know if I'll live. There's, I've, there's never been one job I'd wanted to do the rest of my life. And there's never been one place I wanted to live the rest of my life. So it's, uh, yeah. you know, I'll spend a lot of time up there and, uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, I'll be there the rest of my life because now I'm the plan. I'm building this arena and I need to be there with the kids throughout the winter. You know, I don't have to be there every day, but I'm going to have to make my appearances to yeah. just to keep it going and make sure it's all lined up. No, that's exciting. Yeah. Cause I think uh, a couple more questions. I'll let you go. Uh, because I think when we're t- setting this up, you said for the next six weeks you're going to be on the road. Um, is that like a photo project, or what are you what are you going to be working on? No, no, it's like it always is. I'm assist. I'm well. Normally I assist with Niels, but I'm second shooting with Niels on a job out here in Baltimore. Then I fly back west. A bunch of me and a bunch of guys fought the Malibu fires together last year because we all lost, I lost almost thirty or forty thousand dollars worth of stuff wow uh, i had 26 friends lo- lose their home but we fought fires and i fed the large animals for a week out there so Damn. we kind of formed a group of people out there at point doom and i mean our group ended up on cnn and the new york times and everything but we were all fighting these just total volunteers people like me trying to um help out so we we worked on that well the fire seasons out in california are just gonna get worse and worse so i, I fly back saturday we train to fight those wildfires and on sunday i'll get in my truck first thing that morning i'll drive hopefully to the salt lake area probably gonna do a photo shoot with a cowgirl out there next yeah. morning wake up drive the rest of the way to the ranch get on a plane fly back to the east coast do another week-long job with meals second shooting fly back to the ranch damn uh, we're driving 40 cows, 40 miles. I have a roommate flying out to help out with that, but we'll drive cows for three days. And, and I've Nate, got a Nate's, Nate's busy. Nate's busy. You, you, oh, man. you thrive, oh, yeah. you, you thrive oh. on the road. You love this kind of, this keeping it moving pretty much. Is that kind of inspire your photography? Yeah, you I always, I always like to say I, I take off five days a year, which I don't even know if I take off that many, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I love it. No, I love, you know, I love staying busy. I like, yeah. you know, I like helping out. I like doing you know, working on my art. I like seeing friends, you know, I've done 80 trips across country. I get to see a lot of friends and family that way, you yeah. know? So no, I enjoy it. You know, it, it, it's, I started doing road trips at 18. I'll never stop. You know, I've 
you know, how my idea was to ride a horse all the way across country. I've ridden a motorcycle across country six times. I've hitchhiked across country. I've driven across at 80, you know. Damn, man. Yeah, I love it. But no, yeah, I I don't, I won't have a day off for, uh, for another 40 days and I probably won't take a day off then. I've got uh, art show, the book coming out. I've got the art show for the nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a traveling art show. So I'm going to be doing it in multiple towns and cities across America. You know, I've got, so no, it'll be, uh, no, I normally don't take off like, and then I'll go do the, the, uh, Bigfoot ride, which is the wounded knee ride. And that takes me through, uh, December yeah. 29th. Damn. So I normally have, I normally by, by February, I have 90% of my days filled every day for the rest of the year. That's good, February. man. You got me inspired. Yeah. You got me inspired over here, Nate. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get my ass moving more. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get on the road and get some shit going, you know? Um, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't discourage it. I think it's a good thing to keep that mind active. And, yeah. you know, I just, I, I sit down with a lot of friends that are in, going through stuff and I like to support them through it. And I had a buddy last week tell me, you know, Hey, work has really slowed down. I'm in the mm-hmm. photo business. I'm only working three days a month. Well, I look at, I'm only working three days a month as I've got 27 days free to do stuff. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. what I you know that's like, no, you're not working three days. You, you're not working 27 days. That's what you're doing. And that's up to you, you know? So, yeah. So, uh, no, no it's, it's, you know, if you want to keep it going, Oh, it's, you got to just, you know, Juggle. You got to be willing to to make a lot of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. You know? Definitely, man. Well, uh, Nate, can't thank you enough. I guess my last question, like um, any kind of goals for your photography moving forward, anything you're hoping to work on in the future, I guess. Uh, I think just uh, getting these images, especially for the nonprofit in front of people. I don't know. Yeah, probably books, art shows. I've I've kept. Uh, everything has been in boxes forever. Instagram has allowed me to put some stuff out there, but, uh, yeah, everything's in boxes. I kind of like to get some of my boxes out. I've got 20, 24 years of photography sitting in boxes. I've never really showed anybody. So there's yeah. a lot out there, all these trips I've talked about, you know, there's a lot of that sitting out there. So, you know, I, it'd be nice if I could get to a point where I wasn't busy with five or six different outlets of work to where I could actually sit down with my boxes and I've got a dark room in Venice beach and I never freaking put chemicals in those tubs. Yeah. So I, I need to get back there and get that going, you know? Nice man. And for people listening, like where's the best place to check out your work? No, that, shoot. <laughs> like I said, you can look at a crutchy old website. I wouldn't do that, but, uh, you can go to wherever you want to be, which is my Instagram. Yeah. Wherever you want to be. And it's Juana with two N's and an A. And yep. the letter U, and then uh, oh, they can put in Nate. They can put in Nate Bressler and find me too online. I, yeah, I'll link you know, it. Not, it's not all criminal records. <laughs> I'll link it. And uh, <laughs> is there if people want to? Is can you donate to Sage to Saddle? Do you guys uh, take yep. donations? Yeah, you sure can. And yeah, you can go to Sage to Saddle dot com, or you can go to Sage at Sage to Saddle on Instagram, and that kind of links you into the whole thing. Okay, but. Uh, yeah, there's a, you know, I think if you put in Nate Brusser, you put in Sage the Saddle. But yeah, if you go to the website, there's a link to the GoFundMe. And I'm working on my 501c3 right now. Cool. So the idea is to be uh, able to have that tax exempt so I can get some larger donations. Perfect. Well, uh, Nate, can't thank but, you enough, man. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, a lot of cool stuff you're working on. So can't thank you enough. Oh, I can't thank you enough, man. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. 
I actually wanted to tell you about a new image transfer tool uh, called PicDrop that I've been using lately. Uh, it's a really great tool for whenever you need to send off your files to your clients or whoever you're working with. You can create private galleries, different folders um, for whatever various assignments you're working on. And your clients can actually write notes on the photos you send to them and rate them. It's just a really easy way to organize all your photos in one spot. Uh, for years, I was using like Dropbox and WeTransfer and things like that. Both PicDrop, it was actually designed by photographers, so they really understand what photographers need. Um, so definitely go check it out and let me know what you guys think. Like I said, I've really been enjoying it. And actually with today's podcast, if you enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER, when you sign up at PicDrop.com, you're going to get three months free of the PicDrop image transfer tool. Um, so definitely go check it out. And remember to enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER when you sign up at PicDrop.com. And also just have to give a big thank you to our guest, Nate Bressler. Uh, There's a really interesting guy who has a real passion for photography and everything he's doing with his nonprofit, Sage to Saddle. Um, so I can't thank him enough. Uh, definitely go check out Nate's work. Um, if you want to check out his Instagram, it's called at uh, wherever you want to be. Um, I'll link it in the description. There's lots of cool photos he's working on in the American West and everything he's doing with his nonprofit, Sage to Saddle. Uh, definitely go check that out as well at sage to saddle. Uh, really cool program he's working on and uh, yeah I can't thank him enough and as always I'll be, be having weekly podcasts every Monday on iTunes, Spotify as well as my website alexgagnephoto.com and on my Instagram at alexgagnephoto thanks so much for listening and take care